Well, good morning, everyone. Um, for those of you who might not know it, my name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here with the church. And uh, as I have been preaching lately, I've been taking us through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to keep on there again this Sunday. We started into chapter 7 last week. We're going to stay in chapter 7 um, today and keep moving. Before we read from there, though, let me ask you this. Um, what's the best advice that you that anybody ever gave you? You ever think about that? What's the best advice that anybody has ever given you? Um, here's some utterly random piece of advice that I pulled off the internet, okay? No, no rhyme or reason here. They just caught my eye. But here's some advice from uh, maybe some noteworthy people. Muhammad Ali, he said, don't count the days, make the days count. Not bad. Benjamin Franklin, he said, Waste neither time nor money, but make the best use of both. Or, uh, Mama always said, right, Forrest Gump's Mama. <laughs> Probably many memorable uh, pieces of advice that she dished out, but this one caught my eye. This is Forrest Gump's Mama. She said, you have to do the best with what God gave you. You have to do the best with what, what God gave you. Decent advice. Well... Uh, thinking about chapter 7 here, the writer offers us some advice. So we touched on some of that with the first part of the chapter and with the message last Sunday. Um, but what's the best advice that the writer could offer us? I mean, at least in the span of chapter 7 here, what's the best advice that he offers? And I think we get that in the verses that we'll look at today, okay? So uh, let's do that. Let's open up our Bibles, if you have one, uh, to Ecclesiastes 7. If you happen not to have a Bible, you can raise your hand. One of our ushers will make sure you get one. But Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And uh, before we read, please pray with me again. Uh, Lord, I would just simply say thank you for the opportunity to be together again this morning. And uh, my simple prayer is that you would make your truth to take root in our hearts and you would make that to uh, be watered, and, and, and you'd make it to produce fruit in our lives for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, Ecclesiastes 7, starting at verse 7. And then we'll go to verse 14. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the days of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Amen. So, uh, the writer is giving us some advice here, and he, and he strings together several little, little proverbs. Um, he, these are intended to give us some wisdom, to give us some wise counsel, give us some wise advice as we are navigating our way through life. 
And we touched on some of that advice uh, last Sunday in the first six verses. And uh, just a quick review, the the thrust of that advice was that we would consider seriously the fact that we're going to die. Consider seriously the, the reality and the implications of the fact that we will one day die. And then let that spur us on to live a, a full life, a life really full of the character of God. A life that's full of grace and, and mercy and justice and, and more that we could say about the character of God. And that we would do that so that the day of our death would be better than the day of our birth. Ultimately, so that the day of our death would basically be a stepping off point into eternity with Jesus and with his people forever, for eternity. Well now, um, with these verses that we have in front of us today, verses 7 through 12, or rather 7 through 14, the writer continues now with some more advice. So thinking, first of all, verses 7 to 12, I'm not going to mention a ton of detail related to these verses, but I do want to want to kind of touch on them briefly and just kind of get the sense of what's the core advice that's kind of rising to the surface when you take these verses together. Uh, Again, verses 7 to 12. Um, So with the first few verses there, verses 7 to 9, I think that the advice there at its core would be that we would be patient. Be patient. Okay, so in verses 7 to 8, again, I think you have there... You have there the picture of of one who's looking too much to kind of the end product, kind of looking to the end result of a thing. And he's trying to cut corners to make that happen. So he he tries to to get to that end, cutting corners through through oppression, probably thinking about extortion there. So he's he's using threats and, and force to kind of get what he wants, and he gives in to bribery. He's trying all kinds of things. He's cutting all kinds of corners, basically to make a quick buck or, uh, uh, or kind of force the end that, that meets his demands, whatever they might be, and according to his timeline. And then in verse 9, it's the picture of a person there who, who gets angry because things just aren't happening the way that he wants, or as quickly as he wants them to happen. Things aren't happening according to the timeline that he thinks is best. So it's an issue with impatience, okay? And the writer connects impatience with pride. It's pride, okay? It can be pride because with impatience, an impatient person, an impatient person is going to think that he knows best. No matter kind of what's going on, he knows best, and he's going to do whatever he can to kind of force that outcome, whatever it is. Even if he's got to step on people, oppress them, work with bribes to get there. All right? So it can be pride, it can be pride in that sense. He knows what's best, and he'll do what it takes to get there. Or it can be pride, too, because impatience, um, an impatient person, an impatient person can be under the delusion that he's actually in control of things. He can think that he's got way more control than he actually does. And so he stresses out uh, about just trying to change everything he can or or change things that he really has no control over, things he really has no power to change. And man, if you think about it, isn't that kind of often the way it works out with us when it comes to impatience? When we get impatient, we we really want to control things or or change things that that we really have no right or no power to change. Um, it's just not in our control to do it. And, and, and so it's pride too because in those, 
in those moments of impatience, um, think about it, you, you probably don't want to admit it or you wouldn't maybe say it in the moment, but in reflecting on your times of impatience, in those moments, we really think that the world revolves around us. We really do think the world revolves around us and the world better catch up or get out of my way. One or the other. Catch up or get out of my way. And so the advice here is that we would be patient. Um, Parentheses, I, I absolutely had some serious struggle with this just this morning. So I'm very much talking to myself here. Close parentheses. But the wise advice here is that we would be patient. Don't let the pride of impatience suck you in to doing things that are, pardon the word, stupid, that are mean, that are bad, things like oppression, things like bribery. Don't get sucked into those traps from impatience. Be patient. Don't cut corners. Don't try to force whatever outcome you think is best. Don't try to exercise more control than you really have. Be patient. Okay? And I would say that if verses 7 through 9 stress the issue of impatience, as that's related to the future, then verse 10, um, probably verse 10 there, a warning about the, the potential trap of nostalgia. I'll call it the trap or the potential trap of nostalgia. So verse 10 again says, um, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So this is the snare of nostalgia. It's getting trapped by kind of an overly sentimental longing for, for a seemingly really good, uh, good past and uh, just thinking, man, if I could just be back in the good old days, um, the glory days, we might say, kind of getting sucked into that and, and really longing for that. And that can be a trap for us. Um, don't misunderstand me. Uh, certainly, I mean, think about the good times of the past. It can be wonderful. It can be healthy to think about the good times of the past. It can be fun to, to reminisce, no doubt. So don't get me wrong. I think don't get the writer wrong. But the warning here, the advice here, um, is that we wouldn't live there. That we wouldn't dwell in the past. We wouldn't, we wouldn't dwell in the past. We, we wouldn't let the past define us. We wouldn't let the past uh, determine us, determine kind of our, our, our current state. We wouldn't let the past determine our, our future state. We wouldn't let the, the past kind of hold us back from really enjoying the moment that we have right now or maybe making good and wise choices moving into the future. So you could think... Uh, Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. You remember this guy, Uncle Rico? I mean, here's a guy who was trapped in nostalgia. He's just stuck in 1982, right? He just, he's just dreaming about those days. And if, man, if the coach only would have put him in in the fourth quarter, they'd have taken state, they would have won, and his life would have been totally different. I mean, this is, his, this is where he's living. And uh, he would have been all glitz and glamour, living in a mansion somewhere, and so this poor guy just stuck in 1982. And, and he can't get out of there. He's trapped there by the, the dreams of the past. And, and he can't break free really to enjoy the moment now or really think beyond the moment to really make much more of his life. So it's a, it's a silly example, of course, but it just gets at this idea of the trap of nostalgia, of, of, of kind of getting trapped in the past. And it's not wise, the writer says, to think like that. It's not, it's not from wisdom, he says, that you ask this. It's not wise, he says, because thinking about really what wisdom even is, wisdom is about applying knowledge 
uh, in appropriate ways so that we could live really well. It's the skill of, of applying what we know to be true or various information, applying it in a way that helps us to live well right now. And so with wisdom in relation to the past, well, wisdom is going to learn from the past. Wisdom is going to gather up what it learns from the past, and it's going to put that knowledge to use in ways that are going to help uh, moving forward in, in life. So wisdom helps now, and it, and it moves us pa- uh, 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 past that. And so that's why the writer would say, it's not wise that you think like this, wondering, wow, the, the glory days, weren't they amazing if we could only have those days back? So really, um, with verses 7 through 10, uh, some of the advice here, I think, that the writer gives, wise advice, he would say, listen, don't get cheated out of joy right now in the moment because you're fretting about the past or you're worried about the future. Don't get robbed. Don't, let the, the, don't get, uh, have joy stolen away from you in the moment because you're kind of dwelling in the past or you're just worrying and impatient about the future. I actually uh, stumbled across a quote uh, online the other day. I have no idea where this came from. It definitely, I think, belongs on one of those uh, motivational poster things. Um, But I actually think it's pretty good advice. It says this. It says, you can't change yesterday, but you can ruin today by worrying about tomorrow. All right? You can see that on one of these posters, right? So, might seem weird, but uh, I actually think that's pretty good advice. And I actually think that it, it does kind of gel well with the advice that the, the, the writer is giving us here. Don't ruin today by fretting about or by dwelling on the past or by worrying about or being impatient about what c- might come in the, the, the future. And then in verses 11 to 12, um, those verses, essentially, they're just speaking to the value of wisdom. They're just basically saying, hey, Wisdom is good. Generally speaking, uh, the wise person is going to be better off. Generally speaking, the wise person is going to be healthier. He's going to be happier. He's going to have a better quality of life, generally speaking. And uh, so, wisdom is good. Get it. Get wisdom. Uh, Wisdom is like money, in a sense, he says. He compares it to money. Um, And that's true, I think, especially when we consider the harder times of life, when when things are really not going our way, then just like money really can at one level, in a, in a good way, money can help us. It can help to kind of shore up a certain level of, of provision, a certain level of protection. And, um, and the writer is just simply saying, so it is with wisdom. Wisdom can help provide for us and protect us in hard, uh, hard times. It can help us to make really good decisions about living well. Um, wisdom can help us to enjoy. Uh, wisdom can help us to think kind of like we've just mentioned in the last several verses. And, and so, therefore, enjoy the moment and not get trapped in the past or be impatient about, uh, about the future. So wisdom is good. Okay, so the writer then has offered us this, this advice in these previous um, verses. And he's going to move on. But he's, he's said that uh, we should be aware of the pride of impatience. Don't get trapped in the past. Uh, be patient about the future. Don't let impatience kind of steal you to do bad things like oppression and, and bribery. Um, get wisdom. But again, thinking about uh, that previous question of mine, what is the best advice that anybody has ever given you? Thinking about that. Well, the writer's going to go on here 
and give what I think is his best advice uh, in, in context here. And we're going to get that in verses 13 to 14. So those verses again, verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God, he says. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. That's the best advice that he gives us. Come what may, if times are good, man, be happy about that. Enjoy that. Be joyful. Enjoy the good times. And man, if times are bad, understand that that's a part of God's work. Trust God in that. Trust God and be joyful in the good times. Trust God and be hopeful in the bad times. And man, God really is one to be trusted. God really is one in whom we can hope. Um, Boy, you see, you see God's character, of course, throughout Scripture. Um, Exodus 34 happens to be a section that I think is especially good at highlighting God's character. I mentioned that last week, but you see in Exodus 34 that God's character is highlighted there. God is merciful. God is gracious. Um, he's slow to anger. He's patient. He's loving. He's faithful. He's forgiving. And God is just. So this is the one who is in control of our days of adversity. This is the one who is in control of the days of our adversity. Not, it's not some impersonal fatalistic force. It's not some kind of some other force of fate, as some might say. It's not, it's not um, just random chance, but it's this very personal God who is, who is merciful, who is gracious, who's loving, who's patient, who's faithful and forgiving, who's just. And we could say more about our God. But this is our God who is in control of our days of adversity. Now, um, just a couple things I want to note here about these couple verses. Again, verses 13 and 14. First of all, um, consider the work of God. Okay? Do consider God. Remember, uh, this chapter 7 concerned a lot about wisdom offering us wise advice for wise living and wise ways to think through our life. And, um, and all of that is very much contrary to what we would consider foolish. So foolishness is really the opposite of uh, wisdom. And you know, just thinking about our culture today, when people think about um, what's foolish, um, I think oftentimes what's, what's meant is probably roughly a good sense of what foolishness is, but, but, you know, we're thinking in our culture that a person is a fool, or that's foolish, if a person just really seems to lack sense, um, maybe not, maybe hasn't given a lot of forethought to their decisions or, or, or their actions, um, just really hasn't really, uh, thought through things very well, um, and again, that, 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 that sense of lacking sense. Well, it's not uncommon, I don't think, that that's what is thought of a person believing or trusting in God in our culture today. I think mean, it's not uncommon, I don't think, in our culture today to consider basically belief or trust in God. Um, you know, that's basically pretty childish, I think a lot of people would say in our culture today. It's sort of cute at one level. Oh, you, you believe in this God? You trust God? Okay. That's, that's kind of cute. 
Actually, it can be pretty dangerous at some times, I think people in our culture would say, if you would put yourself in the hands of God like that. Smart people, wise people, so the opinion goes, have moved beyond kind of a primitive belief in God, or at least they've moved beyond thinking that God is in any way interested or really involved in our lives day to day. Actually, Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein supposedly once wrote this. He said this, he said, the word God is for me nothing more than an expression and a product of human weakness. And the Bible, it's a collection of honorable but still purely primitive legends which are nevertheless pretty childish. That's Albert Einstein. Okay, and I, I'm not going to argue with uh, the intellect of, of Albert Einstein. I'm not going to jump in, uh, into that fight. Um, but the Bible has a different view. The Bible has a different view. And actually, the Bible would suggest that Einstein's view is a little weak in the wisdom category. Okay? Um, in fact, from the Bible's worldview, it's the very height of foolishness. It's the very height of folly. It is the exact opposite of wisdom to say that there is no God from the Bible's viewpoint. Uh, so, for example, Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Meaning, um, probably in, the, in that context of Psalm 14, um, not, not somebody saying that literally they don't believe in God, though, though that could very well be um, part of it, but really meaning more this idea that God is marginalized. We don't ha- God doesn't really have anything to do with this. God, uh, God is kind of sidelined. God is not accounted for in our thoughts and in our decisions and in our, in our actions. God's not considered in how we piece together the understanding uh, of, of our world that's in front of us. And so just one thing to note with verse 13. First of all, just note the wise, the wise advice here. And that is simply that we would acknowledge God. Start there. Do acknowledge God um, in and his activity in your circumstances of life. Do acknowledge God and his activity in your circumstances. Do consider him in what we know to be his character. Do consider what the Bible has to say about his plans and his purposes as you work through piecing together understanding the world around you. Uh, Second thing to note here uh, in these verses. um, Consider the work of God. Well, what does that even mean to consider God's work here? Consider. What does that even mean? Um, well, the Hebrew could be translated here, I think, um, accept. And actually, some Bible versions do translate it that way. So accept um, the, the, the work of God. Consider the work of God. In other words, accept the work of God. So um, Phil Riken says this. He says that, that when, when the writer uh, tells us to consider... He's telling us to do something more than simply see what God has done. He's telling us to accept what God has done and surrender to his sovereign will. He's telling us to praise God for all of our prosperity and to trust God through every adversity. So consider God's work. In other words, accept it. Accept the good times for sure. Absolutely accept the good times. But the stress here, I think, really lands on... Um, on the adversity piece. So the emphasis, I think, is to say that it's in the hard times, it's in the troubling times, it's in those times that we, that, that we would surrender to God's will, God's sovereign and good wisdom as he works out life 
according to the way that he sees fit. And uh, those hard times, uh, by the way, that, that's what the writer has in mind when he talks about crookedness. Um, so just so we're clear, when he's talking about crookedness there, he's not probably thinking about sort of a moral crookedness, like something is morally out of line or evil. Um, but he's, he's, he's got in mind the adversity of life. So he's thinking about things like, like sorrow and mourning and sadness and oppression and confusion and frustration and perplexity, on and on. All of the, the different forms of vanity or futility that we see really littered throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And, uh, you know, there's no doubt that we, we get this, right? We've all experienced um, this sense of, of crookedness. This is very often just the stuff of life. And Ecclesiastes is very real about that. This is the stuff of life. Broken relationships, uh, broken bodies, uh, bodies that just don't work right, um, relationships that just aren't gelling the way they, they could or they should, just the angst of, of maybe wanting something that we don't have or, or, or not having something or, or rather having something that we don't want. Um, just the, the, the angst of, of seeing bad things happen to good people or seeing good things happen to bad people and, and so on. Phil Riken again, he says that what's crooked here is basically whatever, whatever trouble or difficulty in life that we wish that we could change but we can't. That's what's crooked. And, uh, and really, I think that, that kind of poses for us a, a pretty good uh, kind of personal reflection question, if you will. What are the things in your life that you would change if you could? What are the things in your life that you would change if you could? But the writer would say, whatever that is for you, don't live in that thought. Don't dwell there, right? Don't get, don't get stuck back in 82 with Uncle Rico back there, but trust God. Trust God. I, I'm, I'm sure that there are probably uh, all sorts of things that you would change if you could. Uh, but um, operative word there, if. You'd change them if you could. But you can't. You can't change them. And, and so the writer's advice is essentially trust God. God with that. Trust him with that. Um, in a sense, stop living in la-la land, right? Pull your head out of the sand, in a sense, and just realize that it is just a fact of life that there are going to be things that you don't like, that are very crooked, very messed up, and you can't change them. You won't have the power to change. They, 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 there's nothing that can be done about it from your perspective. And, and uh, rather than getting frustrated about that, rather than getting kind of vexed about that, we could say the writer's advice, trust God. Trust God. Trust that he knows what he's doing. Don't waste your energy on, on uh, kind of trying to change things that you can't change, trying to straighten out what God has made crooked, but trust God. And, and, and that's, that's the frank, just straightforward advice here. Um, I don't mean to suggest that that's kind of easy to follow all the time, and I experienced it this morning uh, in my own house. It's not easy to, to follow that all the time, and I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that it might not ever be confusing as to just why exactly God would kind of make things the way he does, but as far as advice, it is pretty straightforward. Accept the work of God in making times of adversity. Accept his work in that. In other words, trust him. Trust that he knows what's, what he's doing. Trust that he is in control. 
and then yield to that will. And, and because it is God who is the one who's in control, well, that means that you and I are not. And because it is God who is the one who is in control, that means um, random chance is not, or some impersonal forces of, 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 of fate are not. If God is the one in control, then it means he's the only one in, in control. And so, because God is in control, we really can't know whether our future will be one of crookedness or one where there's, there are straight things, okay? And I think that's the sense of the end of verse 14. It says there that God made the day of adversity so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, I think, our, our inability to, to know or to control the future is the result of God doing his work. God making the day of adversity. The result of that is that we can't know um, what's out in front of us. We don't know what the future holds because God holds the future. We, we don't have the, 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 the control to know that. We can't control the future because God controls the future. We don't have the power to control it. We can't kind of force reality to shape, um, to take a shape that is contrary to the shape that God gives that. That's just not in our, uh, in our makeup. And actually, I would say that, that much of the angst of life, much of the frustration of life, really is because we try to do this. We try to do this. We try to force outcomes that really are impossible. We try, we, 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 we see, we maybe see our, our hard times, and we kind of look out and we envision a much, much better uh, something out there in the future, and we just get impatient with God. And so we, 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 we cut corners, we try to be the masters of our own destiny, and we become proud fools in that way because we functionally marginalize God. We marginalize Him and whatever He might have uh, planned for us. And, and in the end, it's like the proverbial trying to, you know, stick a, a round peg in a square hole. It just doesn't work. But we, but we keep trying, and... Uh, Man, we try to change things that we can't change, and that just drives us crazy, and it gets us all stressed out. Um, so we might, might think of the, the, the serenity prayer related to this. You know what the serenity uh, prayer is, at least most parts of it? Uh, most of you are probably familiar uh, with the serenity prayer um, in, in at least one form or another. Um, probably heard the serenity prayer at some point, even though you might not know it had a name. But the serenity prayer... Um, it's written back in the early 20th century. You might not have known that by a guy named Richard Niebuhr. You might not also have known that. An interesting fellow uh, would commend some research to you on Richard Niebuhr. But he wrote the Serenity Prayer. Um, and it says this. It says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Um, might be a bit cliche, but man, actually, I think that's a good prayer in light of what the, the author is, is, is giving us here as far as advice. It, it gels very well with the writer's sentiment here. That we would, and, and, and so that would be actually a, a, a pretty good prayer to pray in light of what the, the writer is giving us here. And that advice again, the best advice that he has to offer us, I think, in light of this just crazy uh, futility of the world that we see all around us, it's that we would thank God and enjoy the times of prosperity. And it's that we would trust God and hope in God in times of crooked 
adversity. Now, that might be all fine and good, um, but I think it begs the question, why would God make a crooked day in the first place? Okay, so trust him in it, fine, but why would God make a crooked day to begin with? It's a a legitimate question. Um, And we don't really have an answer, I don't think, in the immediate context. Um, But I do think other parts of the Bible definitely shed shed light on that. And um, uh, I'll spare you a lot of details, but the short answer is this, I think. This would be uh, a short answer to that question. And uh, ironically, perhaps, it's this. It's that God crookeded the world, we could say. Uh, I'll coin that term. Crookeded. He, He crookeded the world, so to speak, in order to restore or straighten what the first humans crookeded in the first place because of their sin. And he's going to do that through this perfectly uncrooked life of Jesus. And uh, so with Jesus, or in Jesus, we have, we have God uh, taking on humanity to live this perfectly uncrooked life that none of us could possibly live, and then die a sacrificial death to atone for the sins, to, in some way you could say, atone for the crookedness in all of us, um, for all of us who will trust in him for that. And with Jesus' life, with Jesus' death, with his resurrection, God underscores his promise that he will one day make straight everything that is crooked. All of the crookedness from which we suffer day to day. God's promise the promise of the gospel, the promise of Christianity, is that God will one day straighten everything, all the crookedness that we suffer, with which we suffer day to day. And with Jesus's uh, miracles, with all of the good that he he did while he was on earth, he proved that that uncrooked world that God promises is in fact possible. Because he kind of left a trail of it behind him when he did what he did as far as miracles and good works. He proved that it's possible. He gave us a taste of it. And with Jesus, we really do get a taste of this world that we all want. Namely, it's this world that's just completely free from any measure of crooked adversity. And especially through his resurrection, Jesus gives us a sure reason to actually hope that that world is going to come. And he gives us a sure reason to trust that he alone is the Savior that can uh, usher us into that promised world. And all of that, I think, is part of an answer. It's not free of all mystery, but a little bit of light dawns on the subject. All of that, I think, is part of the answer um, to why God would ever make things crooked to begin with, okay? It's, a, it's at least a general big picture part of an answer. But the Bible does also have some stuff to say um, about something more specifically specific to our specific days of adversity, whenever or whatever they might be, our specific days of, of crookedness. And the Bible actually does give us some promises of what God is doing in those days of crookedness. In those hard times. So for example, um, I'm sure for many of you this is, this is not new, but let it refresh you this morning. From Romans 8.28, we are promised that for God's people, all things work together to conform us to Jesus. 
All of our adversity will be used of God to conform us to the image of Jesus, which is what we all want, right? We all want that, this perfect, uncrooked life. And we'll be conformed to that, and God is using our crookedness to get us there, mysteriously. Or from 2 Corinthians 4, we know that our adversity right now is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that, is, that will be just beyond all comparison. Or from 1 Peter chapter 1, we know that our adversity right now strengthens the genuineness of our faith. It strengthens our faith so that we will, in fact, experience praise and glory and honor with Jesus and his people forever. So the bottom line, um, if we're trusting in Jesus for it, then in some mysterious way, according to God's purposes, all of the crooked adversity that we experience through life will actually serve it will actually serve us it's actually doing us good it's going to make our eternity better than it otherwise would have been without that crookedness mysterious as it is that's the bible's counsel to us and 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 man in that way the day of our death really will be that that we talked about last sunday that really will be better than the day of our birth as we step off into this, um, this world of uncrookedness uh, with Jesus and his people forever. So in light of all of that, again, the best advice in this chapter, the best advice I think that the writer can offer us throughout this crazy life, come what may, he says, don't fret about or dwell in the past. Don't worry and be impatient about the future. Trust God in that moment. Trust him. Um, again, I don't know what what you might say is the best advice that you ever received. But the writer's best advice for us in these verses, bottom line, here it is. In good times, thank God and be joyful. In hard times, trust God and be hopeful. We can do that in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity again to... Uh, uh, mill around in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and, and, and try to glean uh, your counsel for us. And um, I do pray again, as I did at the outset, that you would simply cause your truth to take deep root in our heart this morning and you would make that to, to grow up into great fruit for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.